Welcome to the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation Podcast. In this episode, we answer our students' questions and share information about yoga therapy and meditation with the intention of creating a new paradigm in wellness. I'm going to be speaking about the full timeline of yoga history today. Uh, as you might guess, there's a lot of information that one could present when talking about this topic. Um, this is obviously going to be a very brief introduction, but fairly comprehensive um, as we dig into, into the various time periods of yoga. My goal here is to really give you uh, sort of the lay of the land and to talk about the texts and philosophies and teachers from each time period. To study the history of yoga is to really study the philosophy of yoga. If you're new to, to, to this, this could be a little bit overwhelming. Um, I'm gonna throw a lot of terms out, a lot of philosophies out there. Um, in order to make this a little bit more digestible, I'm gonna uh, put up right now um, basically a timeline, a visual aid for you. Um, and hopefully you can use this as a reference now. Um, really five major time periods we'll be talking about here, as you can see uh, from the timeline. We have the Vedic period, we have the pre-classical period, the classical period, Tantra or the Tantric age, and then uh, what we'll think of as modern yoga. Um, each section I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a brief introduction and then uh, I'll talk about the main philosophical takeaways for each, each of these eras. Um, I want to note and stress that uh, what we've come to know in the West as yoga, sort of these exercise classes that have risen to popularity in the last 20 to 30 years, that is a drop in the bucket of, of the history and knowledge of yoga. So hopefully this acts as, a, as an introduction and sort of charts you on your own course of discovery. The first time period I want to talk about is the Vedic Age, which reaches back to about 3500 BC. Geographically speaking, uh, this is ancient India and maybe parts of Pakistan. What we know about this culture comes from their texts. Uh, Veda actually means knowledge. And um, in in this age, we really get from a yogic perspective a couple of things. One is the Sanskrit language, and with it is mantras. And the other are the texts themselves, which we call the Vedas. And then later in the period, we get the Upanishad texts. Um, the first ones are the Vedas, and there are four of them. The most famous is the Rig Veda, which um, is essentially a guide of, of hymns, right? So in other words, mantras. These texts, these Vedic texts, uh, in addition to hymns and mantras, um, it's, it's a lot of prayer, it's a lot of ritual, um, and how to worship what we can think of as external gods. Um, it's very uh, dualistic in its philosophy, uh, and we'll talk about what that means in just a little bit. And then later in the time period with the Upanishads, we start to see a non-dual philosophy start to take root. Uh, philosophically, the big takeaway here are the mantras. So the Asatama chant, 
uh, and the Om Purna chant that we use in Breathe Deeply comes from the Upanishads and the Vedas, uh, respectively. Uh, I think it's pretty cool that we still chant the same mantras that people were chanting thousands and thousands of years ago. The other philosophical takeaway that we need to wrap our heads around is this idea of dualism versus non-dualism. So this is, this is a core thing that, that all yoga teachers really need to think about. It takes a long time to sort of fully understand it, especially because the, through the history of yoga, the pendulum swings back and forth in philosophical thought. The definition that I'll offer today is that with duality, there's a discoverable inherent uh, difference between a person and divinity or nature. And then with a non-dual, it's the flip, right? There's a non-separateness between a person and nature or a person and divinity. So uh, as we go through here, hopefully I'll begin to explain that a little bit more as we move through the time periods. Um, the other important thing that I'll mention is dualism is sometimes known as Sankhya, um, and then non-dualism is sometimes known as Advaita, so Advaita Vedanta, so which essentially means the end of Vedic thought, um, and, and that sort of creeps in with the Upanishads. So um, hopefully you start to wrap your heads around this a little bit, um, and I'll start to mention it more as we move along. The next time period we have is the pre-classical era, and the pre-classical era really overlaps the Vedic period and the classical period. The Upanishads really sort of mark the start of the pre-classical era. Pre-classical era also gives us major texts. So the Mahabharata, which is an epic poem set in the narrative of a war. And then within the Mahabharata is the Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita is probably the most famous yogic text. Um, it's essentially a story of a Pandava prince, Arjuna, and his charioteer, Krishna, which is sort of a manifestation of God. And these two have a conversation on a battlefield. And within this conversation, we get a lot of, of concepts that have carried on through the ages here. We get the idea of Dharma, it's a big part of the Bhagavad Gita. Get the idea of karma, of bhakti, of worship. Um, get the idea of the gunas, energy, raja yoga. Some of the Samkhya philosophy works its way in there. Um, so it's a really a must read for uh, for yoga students and and yoga teachers. Uh, the big philosophical takeaway here is going to be the relationship between Brahman. Uh, which is all of the universe and Atman, which is sort of the universal soul. So this idea of the soul, the imperishable soul, informs the idea of reincarnation. Um, and that relationship between Brahman and Atman is sort of at the heart of, of Hinduism. Now, it's important to note that the term Hindu is really a name that was kind of thrust upon a lot of varying religious sects and ideas. Um, you know, yoga is not necessarily Hindu, but Hinduism along with Buddhism and Jainism sort of um, very much influence yogic thought as we go through the ages. The Yoga Sutra is the text that really brings us into the classical period. So 
Patanjali, the author, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, is, is the text that really codifies yoga practice. Um, really for the first time in history, it codifies technique and it codifies philosophy. Um, and it's from the Yoga Sutra that we get the famous eight limbs of yoga or the eight aims, aids of yoga. So yoga not being a thing that you do, but yoga being the destination state that you're trying to move towards. So these eight aids are the yamas and the niyamas, which are really sort of ways to live, uh, thoughts on ethics and moral observations and things like that. From there we have asana, and that's what we sort of know as yoga commonly in the West. Uh, asana is really postures. From there we have pranayama. Pranayama is really the manipulation of energy, more often than not through breath. Then we have pratyahara. Pratyahara is the process of sense withdrawal, so very much fits into uh, duality, moving away from nature. And then we have the last three limbs, which are dhyana, scratch that, dharana, dhyana, and then samadhi, collectively known as samyama, sort of collectively known as meditation. But really, dharana is this one-pointed concentration, dhyana is meditation, and then samadhi is sort of this awake, uh, quote-unquote, enlightened state. So Patanjali really maps the way forward to Samadhi through the four chapters of his famous text. Um, and he doesn't, and this is notable, doesn't really talk a lot about, specifically about asana. So he does mention pranayama, does mention asana, but really uh, he's talking about a meditation seat more than anything else. Um, the other thing I'll mention here is that we start to see some Buddhist uh, philosophy uh, and some Buddhist um, thoughts sort of work its way into the yoga stream. So Patanjali was definitely influenced by the Buddha, and you can see that in his writings, um, especially when it comes to the importance of meditation and, to a certain extent, renunciation, sort of a withdrawal from nature. Big philosophical takeaway here for the classical period uh, is going to be duality, right? So if the Upanishads um, swung the, the pendulum towards non-duality, Patanjali swings it back towards dualism. So Patanjali's system of one-pointed concentration and meditation and the complete stillness of the mind are really the main things in the text. Famously, in the second sutra, he says, yoga chitta vritti narodha. So yoga is the stilling of the fluctuations of the mind, right? So we are shutting down brain activity and essentially <laughs> working our way um, out of nature. So it's a, it's, a, it's a dualistic thought, right? So the practitioner begins to realize their own divinity. They become a purusha, right, separate from nature, prakriti. So there's a, uh, a dividing, a, a pulling away from nature into sort of your own and recognizing your own divine state. Next we have what is essentially the post-classical time period, better known as the tantric period or tantra. So with Patanjali, we were thinking 
dualistically, with Tantra, we swing back to non-duality. So let me say first that Tantra, if you're hearing that term, it has very, very little to do with sort of the neo-tantric sexual practices that have uh, risen to some popularity uh, in the more modern age. Um, Tantra really means theory or book. Um, it's, it's interesting, it's worth noting that Tantric philosophy, as far as the, the major texts of the time period, for a long time we didn't really have a lot of those texts translated into the, in the West. It's only more recently that we've gotten some of these major Tantric thought, um, some of these major Tantric texts translated and, and have them move into the West. One of the reasons for that is that in the medieval time period here, when Tantra sort of rose to prominence in India, uh, we had a, a, an invasion of, the, of Muslims into India. And Tantric and yogic thought kind of moved underground for a while. Um, it would sort of come back out in the form of Hatha Yoga. Uh, one of the main texts there would be the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Um, but there's an underground movement of Tantra, and that sort of skews the popularity of Tantra and, and sort of buries some of this non-dual thought um, that only recently is sort of coming back up to the forefront. Um, philosophically, we have to talk uh, non-duality. So non-duality, as the Tantrics understood it, can really be thought of as, uh, with the English phrase, unity consciousness. So the idea that everything is one. So Brahman and Atman are one. Purusha and Prakriti are one, right? And then what rises to prominence here in the Tantric period is that Shiva and Shakti are one. So the Tantric masters took the concepts of the anthropomorphic gods of Shiva and Shakti and sort of put them into the idea of consciousness. So Shiva is the universe, Shakti is the energy that moves that universe, but essentially everything is consciousness. So if Patanjali was, was trying to get us to sort of turn down the, the fluctuations of the mind and remove ourselves from nature, the tantric masters are saying, no, it's, it, that's part of the process, but essentially you have to recognize that you are fully part of this universal consciousness. Um, the, ta the tantric masters really firmly believed that you didn't necessarily need to be a renunciate to, to, to find an awake state, right? So the tantric practices were really aimed at householders, right? Everyday common people. Um, as Hatha Yoga began to sprout up towards the end of the Tantric period, um, there's a little bit of a shift back to the renunciate. Um, Hatha also brings in a lot of the asana and the pranayama practices that are, are pretty, you know, popular now in, in yoga classes. But the tantric masters were dealing with that as well, right? There's some, some evidence that they were doing sun salutes in the tantric period. They were moving energy with pranayama. Um, so there's sort of this 
rise in non-dual thought and then sort of it goes back underground and then some of it kind of comes back up through hatha yoga towards the end of of the tantric time period so all of that brings us to what we know as as modern yoga so this is for modern yoga we're really thinking the 20th century right so um What's important here is how yoga sort of makes its way to the West. The first notable gurus or teachers that that started to bring these teachings to the West, two of them I'll mention today. One is Vivekananda. So Vivekananda famously teaches at the Parliament of Religions that takes place in Chicago in 1893. Um, that's sort of we sort of mark that as the as the first guru sort of. Um, big teaching moment that happens in the West. And then the other um, famous guru that, that starts to bring some of these teachings to the West is Paramahansa Yogananda. So uh, you might know that name from, uh, from a book he wrote called The Autobiography of a Yogi. Very famous um, uh, yoga book. And um, The other notable guru that we'll talk about is Krishnamacharya. So Krishnamacharya is, is really sort of known to some people as the father of, father of modern yoga. Um, he's really talking asana here, especially asana, although that wasn't the only thing he taught. Um, Krishnamacharya is the teacher of a lot of the teachers that, that start to set the lineages that, that rise into popularity in the last half of the last century and into what we know now as yoga. So for this section, the philosophical takeaways are really these various lineages, and we'll talk about four of them, four teachers, really. Um, three of them probably, you know, codified their own, you know, sort of style of yoga. So the first is BKS Iyengar. Iyengar yoga is really, when we think Iyengar, we think alignment-based asana. So taking props uh, and 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 building the perfect yoga pose with your with your students. So adjusting them with props to get them into sort of perfect form. That was kind of Iyengar's um, take on asana. He wrote a fairly famous book, Light on Yoga. If you ever pick that up, hundreds and hundreds of pictures of these various asana, these various yoga postures. Next we have TKV Desikachar. So Desikachar is Krishnamacharya's son. And he really carries on the more therapeutic style of asana. So um, it became known, sort of well known as Vini Yoga, not as well known as Iyengar. Um, but Vini Yoga is really the style of, of easier movement and breath. Um, and it really uh, influences what we know as, as yoga therapy today. Uh, the other... Um, sort of well-known style of yoga is Ashtanga yoga. And that comes from one of, another one of Krishnamacharya's uh, students, and that's Patabi Joyce. So um, Joyce was younger when he learned yoga, really took to a more vigorous asana practice. He came up with a bunch of, uh, actually six famous series of, of sequences and linked them together in a flow. So, um, we think of Patabi's system as Ashtanga. Sometimes it's called Ashtanga Vinyasa. To differentiate it from Ashtanga, the term that um, Patanjali uses for his eight limbs of yoga. So 
the vinyasa styles, the flowy styles that we see today really come from uh, Patabi Joyce's take on, on asana. And then last but not least, I'll mention Indra Devi. So Devi was a Russian yoga teacher uh, who studied with Krishnamacharya, and she is cited for one being one of the first female teachers, um, but also she popularized yoga to a certain extent. She taught, she opened a yoga studio uh, in Hollywood, for example. Um, in conclusion, you know, there are a lot of lineages, um, things I haven't mentioned, Kundalini, Bikram, a lot of styles of yoga. But all of these styles of yoga that get practiced uh, these days are sort of an amalgamation of the history of yoga. All this philosophical thought, you know, as we move from mantra and philosophy into, you know, what an asana is, what breath work is, um, you know, how to do meditation, you know, all of this influences these early gurus from the, the early 1900s and then influences the, the lineages that, that we sort of practice now. Thanks for listening to the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a positive review, and sharing it with friends. For more information about our yoga therapy and meditation trainings and programs, visit breathingdeeply.com.